And he said, so my biggest worry with you is you love certain things and you go and you hit it and you nail it, but then you get tired of it because you want to try something new. Hi, I'm Josh Chambers. And I'm Leif Parton. And welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change and we get the backstory. This episode, we spoke with Ty Clark. Now, Ty is an amazing artist and has fit more change into his 43 years than many people do in their entire lifetime. For Ty, a lot of his changes started when he was a teenager and went to Rwanda post-genocide. He encountered the death and destruction and horrors that were the Rwandan countryside at the time and it changed everything for him, how he viewed his own life and his purpose here. At the time, Ty was an aspiring professional basketball player and through a series of injuries, eventually had to retire that career only to eventually become an artist. And it was really cool to hear how he bridged those two worlds or attempted to bridge those two worlds. Back then, you were either a jock or an artist. You weren't allowed to be both. And that's something I can really relate to. Uh, Ty eventually became an influencer at Quicksilver, then decided to give all that up and move to China, as one does, and then decided to give all that up and uh, move back to the States and then helped co-found a successful startup and then decided to give all that up and become an artist. So Ty had this really interesting pattern of a learning, 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 and then eventually saying, okay, this is good, I'm out. And we talked about whether or not that's in your DNA or if that's something that you learn, that desire to always try something new and to change and to learn. Uh, so it was really interesting talking to Ty about what success looks like, what art looks like, and uh, how whether or not you're wired for these things or, again, whether or not they occur because of insane experiences like visiting Rwanda right after genocide. It was a really fun conversation. Ty's an amazing guy, like we said, an amazing artist. We're going to include links to all of his work on our website. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Please subscribe and consider sharing this with one friend this week. And if you know someone who's undergone some kind of change, please let us know at howhumanschange.com. Welcome to the podcast, Ty Clark. Glad to be here. Uh, our first and best question is, what were you like in high school? Wow. I was definitely a, a cocky kid, that's for sure. Uh, I was 6'4 I was and probably 185 Whoa. at the time. Uh, played soccer and basketball and baseball. Um, pretty much anything I could get my hands on. But I was also an artist, so... It was a weird dichotomy of friends. <laughs> so in that, I, that day and age, you weren't allowed. Those those two groups didn't mix. No, those they did not mix at all. And so any of my friends that were artistic, you know, were you know skaters or punkers or you know, I guess at that time too, grunge just entered the scene. So you kind of yeah. had the the grunge kids as well. Um, and so I'd hang out with them in art class and outside of school every now and then, but when you're in athletics, that's what you're wrapped up in, in high school. And Great. so all, all of my basketball friends, you know, pretty much made fun of the other side of me and would laugh, you know, and always ask, why are you hanging out with those guys? <laughs> Were you, did you always, I had a very similar experience. This is one of the reasons I think we hit it off a while back because mm -hmm. I was stuck in between creativity and athletics. Yeah. Although I don't think I was nearly as I didn't have like a creative friend group as much. Uh -huh. uh, 
but I never felt like I was allowed to be one or the other with the other group. So like yeah. I was the creative folk, it was always like you're too much of a jock. And if I was with the jocks, it was like you're too sensitive or whatever the word of the day was. Yeah, that, that was absolutely conversations between the two. And I, I think I was kind of screwed up because I tried to be both. Yes. And so even though, you know, you would say you're in the, the popular athletic crowd or whatever, like I, I tried to dress the part of the artistic side. So I tried to blend. I guess yeah. this was this was pre-real world. <laughs> and Puck, you know, and when I was in junior college, they nicknamed me Puck because that's really? real world hit. And so all the guys I played with who were from the inner city, all they knew of like a kind of punk rocker grunge guy was Puck from MTV. <laughs> that's um, awesome. So that was my nickname. But in high school, it was I was trying to dress grunge and jock. Yes, so it was probably, totally. It was probably a pretty odd combination. <laughs> I, did you did you find yourself needing to defend yourself all the time, or was, was everyone pretty cool with it? No, I, I think because, you know, just I guess because of my ability on the athletic side, I didn't need to. You right. know, if, if I was probably a bench guy or a guy that really didn't play much, yeah. Then I would have really been the odd man out. But I think because of the you know, the reputation I had in Northern California with athletics, it was wasn't hard to do that. And that I, I find that so amazing in sports that you can be you can be the guy that everyone that all of the jerks would make fun of. But if you're good, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I had a captain once who was asthmatic, had a lisp, and tucked all his shirts in with like just was the the guy who you if he was not the captain and one of the best players in the team you knew that every guy in that locker room would just destroy this guy but yeah. because he was good it was like the guy can do whatever he wants yep that's a weird idea it's so dumb it's so dumb so fast forwarding you're you were in high school playing sports and then you started playing basketball professionally semi-professionally and you moved for it right yeah so competed on the collegiate level at a really high level and then did my best to play internationally i, I had no help from my coaches which was kind of sad huh. um, at the time so i basically stole one of my coaches rolodexes <laughs> after my senior year and i tried to find anybody i could that had anything to do with professional basketball wow um, and I found one guy in Europe who was basically one of the heads of FIBA at the time, and he used to coach at Azusa Pacific, where I played basketball. Okay. Uh, his name was Terry Layton, and ended up he was actually connected to my uncle, which helped that relationship. So I just got on the phone and called him from my coach's office after hours. I think he was in Europe somewhere. Oh, my gosh. And just, and just said, hey, Terry, this is Ty Clark. I just finished at Azusa Pacific, and I, I want to play overseas. What do I need to do? And he said, well, your coach is going to be no help. I can guarantee you that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my answer was, yeah, exactly. Because when I asked my coach, he said, yeah, I don't know anybody. That was oh, his that answer. Sucks, man. Um, and so he put me in touch with an agent uh, in Long Beach. Named, How old are you at this time? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Like Probably. 18? Oh, no, no. This is. I was probably 21. Oh, okay. Got it. Oh, yeah. I was yeah old, college. Right. Yeah, I was older. I had redshirted. So I think I was. And so I went and played for an agent in Long Beach a few times. And then I went on a trip for a summer in Romania and competed oh. against uh, 
national teams and young professional teams and things. And scouts came out to watch me play there and nothing really happened. And then I, I just had a series of ankle injuries that just were devastating. Um, and I signed a contract in Mexico to play in the Mexican leagues. Mm-hmm. And then before I went over, I went without an agent. They backdoored me on the contract. Oh, man. <laughs> and so like it was how? Just, like what they do? Uh, I mean, when you don't have an agent, you're, you know, you're doing it all on yourself. So signed the contract, was getting ready to head over there. And then they basically, right before I was about to leave, said, oh, we signed somebody else. No. Your oh. contract is void. <laughs> uh. Uh, and so I basically just said, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. I'm beat. I'm worn out. Yeah. Um, you know, I would have been making probably minimal teacher salary, which for six months would be pretty awesome to, yeah. to do it, to do what you love. And I just said, you know what, I'm done. Um, ended up meeting a girl and getting married and moved on with life. Wow. So tell me about that because it sounds, I mean, the way you're telling it, it sounds like just made the decision and then got married and moved on. But how hard was it? Like, what was, was it an easy oh, it, thing or was it yeah, heartbreaking no. or what? It was, it was heartbreaking. Cause I mean, as a kid, you have dreams, right? And some of us have the ability to, you know, hit all those goals and dreams. And at that point, you know, I was hitting every goal and dream I ever, ever set out for myself mm-hmm. on, on the athletic side. And so, no, it was heartbreaking, but I knew physically I couldn't do it anymore. I would have gotten hurt again. I mean, I, I was talking, even after the Mexico, I was talking to, uh, the Australian basketball league and trying to work stuff out and I'd go yeah. work out and then I'd hurt something just work. I mean, I was still working out yeah. four to four to six hours a day. Yeah. Uh, just still with that goal in mind. And I really had nothing else in my head. I wanted to do nothing. What was it that, that allowed you to stop working out four to six hours a day and give up the dream? I think just reality. I think I just had to come to a point where there's more to life than just having this one idea way more to life. Um, did someone I, talk to you about it or did you just come to that conclusion on your own or what? No, I, it's I think kind of I, a big deal. I came to that conclusion on my own. Um, I mean, and, and I, I've always wanted to be an artist as well. So that was always part of my mindset, you know, was, Oh, you know, basketball is my thing right now, but man, I want to be an artist someday. And that, and those, those dreams coincided as a kid, like even as a kid, I either wanted to be a, a poet and a writer or an artist. Like that was my so cool. Thing plus basketball. So did you find yourself Ty? Did you, when basketball ended, did, did you ever look back on it and say, Oh, I don't think I actually loved it as much as I thought I did. I love art. Or was it a true love that just didn't work? Well, physically, I wish I had probably never done it. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Just because of injuries. And I feel like I'm 60 at times when I get up in the morning and body just feels broken. Um, yeah. And I honestly, it took so much of time away from art and writing that, man, I, the friendships, I never want to lose those friendships that I made playing basketball. But as far as just the game itself, yeah, I loved every second of it. But if I wouldn't have played basketball, I would have had so much more time painting and writing. Yeah. Who knows where I would be today yeah. in my and what I'm trying to do now. I, uh, I, I regularly I don't even talk to people very much about how much my body hurts yeah (laughs) because only like the people that I'm super close to hear about it because you just especially our age even the trainers that I had back then were like really good trainers but they were not 
it still was so in, infected with that suck it up, get tough mentality. Absolutely, yeah. That these days, I mean, a bunch of broken bones later, lots of torn ligaments, and like none of my joints work properly. Right. And it's just, it's the worst. It sucks. Absolutely. And I think there, there was some, there's some good things I think that came from that mentality and bad things, obviously. Yeah. I think the good things that came from that mentality is not giving up, you know? So yeah. even today with art, it's like art is a battle. I mean, it's a, it's almost an impossibility to make art a career because it's really a career that's not a career. Yeah. But I have this mentality inside of not giving up. Like no matter how many no's I get, no matter how many, you know, bad critiques I would get, I'm always going to push through. So I think on that side, it formed this mentality inside me of if you're going to set a goal, go for it, go hard, work hard, practice your craft, be as good as you can with it and get better. Yeah. You know, and I don't, maybe that mindset wouldn't be there if I hadn't gone through those years. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I don't know how many people have that experience of going hard after a goal and seeing it unequivocally not achieved at such a young age. Yeah. What do you think that did for your mental, like the, the worldview and the way that you looked at career and life? Well, I think I got as far as I could go. You know, and I wasn't the greatest basketball player in the world, and I'm only six four, so I'm kind of, I'm a small guy, you know. And at the <laughs> time, at the time, it's a you know, it's a big man's game when right. I was playing. Today is totally different, um, but I think I mean I I think I achieved as much as I could with basketball, mm -hmm. and I think it was satisfying to know that I got as far as I dreamt of going before I quit. Yep. You know, before I had to stop playing, um, and. Man, at the end of the day, I, I had bigger goals to get to. So I think I was able to go, yeah, this sucks. Yeah, I don't want to be done, but man, I want to make it an art. And if I continue this pursuit, that's just going to continue to delay that. So you had this jolt of, not even jolt, but this kind of consistent engine running, this hum of confidence going in the background that, sure. that lasted because you did achieve a really high level at a young age. Absolutely. You got, you met your wife in the mm -hmm. middle of all this, then mm -hmm. you get married and then you're like, okay, what do I want to do with my life? What happens then? <laughs> yeah, that, I think that was the big reality check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, you know, I've moved from California to Texas, which is a massive culture change. You grew up uh, in California. Yeah. I grew up in California Northern California and then lived all over Bay area, LA, Southern California, San Diego, beautiful, beautiful places. And then I moved to Dallas and it was like nuclear wow. bomb drop. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to hang out with anybody. I didn't want to meet anybody. Why not? So I, it was such a culture shock for me mm -hmm. coming from the beach in the mountains to concrete. Um, I don't know. I, it was, it was really, really hard. And I mean, being, you know, newly married is also always a difficult journey. Like, yeah. you know, now it's just you two. You know, yeah. I left all my childhood friends, the guys I played ball with, the guys that I'm doing art stuff with in San Diego, like that, those relationships are almost void at that point. And the internet wasn't what it is today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is 2000. Yeah. You know, like you're still stealing AOL free 120 minute discs to, to do email, <laughs> you know? Um, 
So things, I mean, it was a radical, radical change. And why did you do it? Loved my wife. She wanted, she wanted, she wanted, to, move. She wanted to stay there. Her, she's really close with her family. Uh, uh, her mom had died of breast cancer when she was in high school and her sis, she and her sister are really close and her family's close. And so it's like, let's do it. I grew up apart from family. So even though I'm real close with my family, I left to play basketball the week after I was graduated yep. high school. And so for me, family was just like your family, no matter what, no matter where you live, Texas has a very different mentality and it's a mentality I love where you live near family and family supports you and you're close and you're a unit. And so, yeah. you know, I made that decision based on her, but I had no idea what to do other than play basketball. Yes. I've done anything else and you can't just be an artist with the snap of a finger either. <laughs> so what did you do? I worked retail. Well, what's the easiest what's the easiest thing to do? Went to the mall and got a job working retail. Did you have a did you have a bachelor's degree? No, uh uh-uh. uh. No, I, I studied I went to school and studied the things I wanted to <laughs> with my basketball scholarship. Got it. <laughs> so I studied art and I started studied literature and theology and kind of said screw all the other things because I don't care about those things. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that I feel like as I've gotten to know you, the one of the reoccurring themes in your career decisions has been doing what you want to do uh-huh. based on your interests and just kind of not in a rebellious way, but just ditching what other people say you're supposed to do and what you should do. Right. That seems like it's been a pretty consistent theme. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty fair to say. Like I I don't know. I've, I've never been attracted to conventional. Why? I have no idea. I think just I was from the just, time you were a little kid. I think I was wired that way, but I think the way I grew up too, and in my family's like on my, my mom's side was a very creative artistic family. And so I grew up learning about art and literature and poetry and classical music. And her oldest brother was a world renowned sculptor and Raku artist. Um, and then on my dad's family, they're Did all... Did you say... I'm going to crack an awful joke. Did you yeah. say raccoon artist? No, raccoon. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> R-A-K-U, raccoon. Mm. So it's an ancient form of pottery. Oh, cool. Where it, it's, you know, doing a wheel yep. and making pottery and things. But it's, a, it's an ancient art where you actually... The kiln is in the ground. Oh, interesting. Rather than a big kiln. So the kiln's built in the ground... And when you patina or coat your piece and put it in the ground, you kind of never know what it's going the finished product's going to come out with because you can't really control the temperature. <laughs> cool. So, oh. And he's he's shown all over the world from I mean he has stuff in the Smithsonian to oh. you know the Tate the Whitney I mean all over he he's deceased died when I think was maybe nine or ten so he's mm. twenty twenty three years older than my mom. Okay. Um, and so but. Because of that, I've always looked up to him. Yeah. He honestly is like the person I've always been trying to catch. Huh. That's interesting. So you always had this creative, you had a creative, like you had creative instilled in you, creativity instilled in you. There's blood for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In the DNA. So you're working, just do a really quick uh, chronology. Go from just as fast as you can, go from retail to present day, just like hit the high points. Yeah. So I went retail, ended up working for Quicksilver, um, in Texas and then worked my way up the the chain at Quicksilver and got to know 
a lot of the executives at corporate office and became really close friends with a few of them. And then my wife and I decided to move to China right when my career was exploding at Quicksilver to open a coffee shop and work with the underground church in China. Um, and so we bailed from Texas, sold and gave away everything we owned and left to do missions in China. We thought we'd be there for a long time and ended up leaving 13 months after due to some sketchy things that our China leader was doing mm-hmm. that, that we called into fruition and we ended up being the scapegoats out of the blue. Oh. It's just kind of, a historical church move, I feel like, <laughs> across the board a lot of times. <laughs> wow. um, you know, Sorry. believing the leader and not the people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we left that, and I ended up finding a Chinese business that was starting in Texas after we moved back. And I got a job there. This oh guy randomly ends up as a guy that invented the helmet camera years what? ago for Oregon Scientific in Hong Kong, which is one of the world's largest electronic companies. Um, He's a stud and GoPro copied his idea and he started a helmet camera company and paid me to learn how to be a marketing director and a PR director What? because I lived in China. And so I did design for them. This whole time I'm teaching myself Adobe Creative Suite to the max. Yeah. So while we're in China, I just am learning everything I can about design and Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, you name it. Just teaching myself, thinking this would be an easy road to go into because I'm creative. Mm-hmm. So he hired me and basically paid for me to to do all that stuff and learn how to do it. Um, and so I ended up working with Edelman PR internationally, working with yeah. Co- oh, his wow. friends at Kodak. So I ended up doing things with some really big and large companies because of him. And then he ended up, because of a bunch of bad financial moves he made, he ended up letting go of me. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And then my wife and I started a fashion brand. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started a fashion brand, and we toured the country for almost two years doing fashion shows with my art. and This whole time, I'm I'm creating art on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we toured the U.S. doing that and got a lot of really good recognition. Um, We were one of the first social social brands we started at the same time as toms and did a number of things with toms in the beginning of beginning of them as well no way. and then, uh we ended up stopping that because we just got tired of it it was just a beating and i helped start a company in austin called kamek um and so i helped start that company and did a number of really large kickstarter campaigns for them um did a big business accelerator where i made met josh in new york and we kind of set ourselves aside there and sat in the back and (laughs) (laughs) laughed and watched and made fun of people. And also (laughs) we did none of those things. We We did none of those things. And we also made a lot of good friends there too, with with some great people. Um, And I just wasn't making enough art. And this two years ago, I left that company that I helped start. um, That's really taken off in great ways um, to do art full time. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ty. So that's there's a little wow. long nutshell then. That's perfect. There's, that there's a million there's a million different things to talk about. And but I'm so struck by this arc of your career where it's like it's like up, 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 and then it's boom. just like crash. Yeah. Crash. How is that how is that have you recognized that over the years? Are you like, what is going on? Or are you like, I don't care, it's fine? 
You know, what's really funny is uh, my old youth pastor as a kid growing up, um, who's a really good friend and been an incredible mentor over the years. Um, he always told me, he said, Ty, I always worry about you. And this is when I got engaged. He said, I'm really worried about you. Is this, are you really in love with this girl? Wow. And I was like, yeah, man, why? He said, because you get tired of things really fast. Uh-huh. And he yeah. said, so my biggest worry with you is you love certain things and you go and you hit it and you nail it, but then you get tired of it because you want to try something new. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you can't do that once you get married. Mm-hmm. And you better make sure this girl is the one so that you don't do that in marriage, yeah. um, which I thought was brewing advice. And that really did hit me hard because I went, man, he's right. I've never mm-hmm. lived in the same place for longer than a, a year or two. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and the great thing is, is I married a girl that is up for that experience of always yeah. trying new things and starting our own businesses and moving and going, oh, let's move overseas. Let's not. Let's move here. Let's do this. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been a great partnership. But but I think that's what it is. Mm. Uh, it's just that I'll, I'll go really hard and be in love, but I, I don't think I was created to be a long-termer. The, what does success look like for you then? How would you define success? Because the, one, the story that struck me the most is your basketball doesn't work, you go get married, you work retail, that's not an easy job, and then you climb your way, maybe like claw your way up the chain to the point where you're able to actually make money, mm-hmm. have a successful career in the standard terms, and then you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to China. Yeah. Tell me about that. Was it like, this isn't success for me? This isn't, this money thing doesn't matter to me? Or was it a very difficult decision? Uh, well, the only reason it was a difficult decision for me with Quicksilver in China was the relationships that I formed at Quicksilver. Um, mm. So my boss, who was the VP of retail, is today one of my closest friends. Mm. Um, and he's in Hawaii and has a new mm. retail business in Hawaii that he started but Dewey was a mentor for me, but we just became brothers, which is kind of random to say about, you know, a retail manager and the VP of a retail company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I kind of learned through Quicksilver that my job isn't about success. It's about the relationships that I form in that job um, and hmm. being the absolute best I can when I'm there. Um, and, and so I think with anything that I do, I, I want to be the, the best I can at what I do in my craft or in my job or in my career. I, I think that sports mentality of always showing up early, staying later, um, and, and really being a leader um, has been the forefront in jobs for me. And then just really developing the relationships within there. But man, I, I think I even told Greg when I started Kamek, like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'd love to come and do this for five years and really help you build it and then see what may happen after those five years. Cause I knew I would probably never stay the full. Got it. You know, but so best you use the word best, like you want to be the best at what you do yeah. in success. You must have a different definition of that than most people because yeah. being the best uh-huh. looks like staying at Quicksilver and becoming the CEO. That's like sure. the best means being the number one leader or number two leader. But for you, being the best, like it cap, it sounds like it, it hits a ceiling at some point where you're like, I'm the best that I want to be at this 
thing and that's good enough for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think one of the things that Dewey at Quicksilver taught me was it's not about how good you are. It's about how good the people under you are. And so he kind of prepared me like your job, your job is to invest so much in your employees and those under you as a leader that you can raise them up to take your place. Hmm. And I think that always stuck with me like, yeah, I mean, man, this life is short. I mean, I'd be gone tomorrow. And so if I work my way up to a CEO at Quicksilver and pass everybody along the way, like, what does that do? Yeah. You know, I think, I think what legacy really means is once you leave this earth, you know, how many people sit and think about the time that they spent with you and how you impacted or inspired their lives rather than, man, he sure did have a ton of power as CEO of Quicksilver, you know? And so I've kind of, I've kind of really adapt, adapted my life to that more than, man, I want to be the best-selling artist in the history of, you know, abstract contemporary art. I want to, I want to sell 160 million painting like Basquiat when I'm 50, you know, I, I'd rather have work showing and be able to stand up in front of the, you know, in front of the audience that's there at my show and just share about the story behind my art and Hmm. not sell a painting and walk away from that, Hmm. you know? Interesting. Well, what, uh, what's your art about now, given all that context? Like what, what are sort of the things you're putting out there? And it's, I mean, it has, I just feel like I've finally over the last two years come into what it means to be an artist. Um, and tell us about that. Sure. Well, I, so as far as creating art, I used to always just do one. I do one piece and then I create another piece and then I create another piece. They're all different. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I left the entrepreneur world two and a half years ago, my first day in the studio, I literally sat and stared at a blank canvas for about 10 hours. I had no idea what to do. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, so this is what my new life's going to be like every day. Yeah. Um, next day, I went out and sat for about four hours. Um, and so I was like, man... I studied entrepreneurship and marketing and design and trends and all those type of things every day at work. I need to do the same thing with art. Um, so I really started studying the artists that spoke to me or people that I felt like my work was similar to. And I realized that the majority of artists who are very successful do bodies of work rather than individual pieces. And I think the job of, of an artist is to tell story is to observe the world around us and share the things that we see through different eyes than what the average person sees. What can we bring into context? What can we bring to life that may be missing? Um, And so I decided I I was going to kind of create a theme or an idea and do eight to Mm. 10 pieces that all revolve around one idea so that if it hangs in a gallery, it's one complete story. Mm. It's not a bunch of different pieces in a room that all mean different things. Each piece may hold different ideas, but it's all wrapped around one theme. And so the first series I did was on tension. And I started to think about this tension that existed between myself and the canvas as Hmm. I was trying to create for the first time in a full capacity of working on my craft. And there was this tension that existed where here I am in front of a blank canvas. I know what I want to say, but I don't know how to say it yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how is the audience going to receive it when it's hanging on a wall? And so I just started to create within that atmosphere and really kind of writing and talking and interviewing musicians and other artists and people who deal with different tensions. And I started to kind of create a story based on that. And so that's where I've gone with my work. I think my most, at least for me, my most powerful series was called Healing Wounds hmm. okay. that I did a year and a half ago 
that I took stories from my travels around the world working in Rwanda post-genocide, the Uganda, East Africa, China, and rural communities, um, and kind of looked at how social norms, economic norms, classism to racism, different things affect communities, and how, yeah. how physical wounds have the same healing process as emotional wounds, where you can get a small cut or you can get a small emotional wound, but if you don't take care of that, and go through a healing process, it can get infected and actually ruin, you know, yeah. your body. And the healing processes were similar. And so I started thinking of going back to the Watts riots and Detroit riots in America. And I started the series right after the Trayvon Martin shooting as huh. well. And so I was looking at how there's these wounds in society that start with little teeny things, little cuts or little bruises. And huh. because we have lost the ability to have dialogue amongst communities, I feel like those wounds become infected and eventually something causes them to erupt and cause major, major problems. Yeah. And so I kind of tried to paint that and those feelings and what I was saying and using text to provide some context and texture and color. And for me, it was emotional. I mean, it was a really emotional series. And I think when I've had the ability to, to show that work and talk about it, it's affected people in the same way. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. <clears throat> What's the difference now, Ty? Would you say you, you figured out what it meant to be an artist? How has that definition changed now versus back in the day? I think it all has to do with time. Um, because back in the day when I was painting, it was on a Saturday night when I had time. It was on a Sunday or you know, maybe every month I would do a painting or two. So I didn't have much process or thought. It was more just, oh, I think this might look good and let's work on this technique that I love that Cy Twombly does or that Rothko did. And But I think now it's it's a full-time job for me. So I'm spending eight to 10 hours in the studio every day and I'm able to work through not only myself, but technique and process and really having the time to go. If I'm in a room with my piece and I talk, I can really get a clear understanding on how somebody views my piece. And mm. they go, wow, I really see what you're trying to say through those lines or that texture or whatever. But I think the challenge for an artist is how can my pieces speak when I'm not in the room? Yeah. yeah. And so I've been able to really kind of spend time working through that and experimenting with that as well. Um, is it in my title? Is it by using text to provide context? Is it by what this entire series means and how each piece moves along each other? So I think it's time developing my craft interesting well going back chronologically to two of the big big shifts you talked about the quicksilver to china shift and then the entrepreneurial uh, fast-paced world to becoming an artist what led up to those changes what were the small and big moments that caused you guys to go to china and that caused you to eventually leave entrepreneurship <laughs> well china and, sorry just to yeah qualified. You didn't sure. leave entrepreneurship. You left that entrepreneurial company. I think that's right. important. Right. Absolutely. As an artist, I think we just have an adventurous heart and mind. And mm -hmm. so we're always looking for some type of change. That doesn't really mean like that you're looking to change cultures or you're looking to change, you know, how you dress or what you look like. I think there's just this radical dwelling inside of, I just need some adventure. I need, I need those levels to stay at an adrenaline 
pace where <laughs> I'm not right. always trying to figure out what to do. And I loved Quicks. I mean, I've never loved a job probably more than Quicksilver. Mm. Um, I had some great friends. I loved the company at the time. It's changed drastically since then. Um, but I think I started traveling to China with a few guys in my church and I was just like, I fell in love with the culture and I fell in love with the youth there who were radically going through a change and thinking for themselves in a communist society for the first time in China's history. The youth were starting to feel like something's wrong here. And I, there was something about that, man, I just ate up. I just loved that mm. I was meeting these tattoo artists and skaters and, you know, artists over there who are like, why do I feel this way? So you got exposed to it by going on a trip the first for the first time? By going time? on a few trips, yeah. Got it. And was when, when someone said, Ty, you should come on this trip, why did you go? Well, I'd, have, I'd already done stuff with my dad in Africa. Because my dad does sports sports camps all over uh, South America and Africa and, um, and Mexico. And so I'd already gone with him. And I was just kind of itching to get Got international it. again, you know. And yeah, yeah, let's do this. And I'd never been to China. It's like, yeah, I'm down. Let's go. So when you it went and you got exposed to a brand new culture, what do you think made you receptive to appreciating that culture and enjoying it versus one approach is it doesn't you don't even notice it. It doesn't change you. You don't think differently. You just show up as a tourist. You come home as a tourist. Another approach is that you hate it and can't stand it there and come home and think, thank God, I don't live there. Sure. And there's that this was, other approach, which is really. <laughs> <laughs> that was Mandy. <laughs> but then this, the other approach. Wait, no, so she hates it. Because you took this third approach, which is, oh, this is amazing. And there's things to learn. And I enjoy this. Her, she her comes first back trip, to, Yeah, her first trip there, she's like, hell no. It's <laughs> amazing. So what's the conversation looks like? What does it look like going to say, you know what, let's move there full time. Well, I, I called her from China, I think after my third trip, and I said, we're moving. And then the phone cut out. <laughs> and she couldn't get back a hold of me. And let's just say all of our friends were like, your wife was going to kill you. If she had a gun, she would have shot you in China. Um, and so when we got back, I mean, she had spent a lot of time praying. Well, I think I still had a few days left in China. And she just spent a lot of time really thinking and praying about it. She's like, you know what, let's do this. Mm. let's do this adventure wow so then you're you go to china you do your thing and then what are the little things that lead you from yeah. the from kamek to say like you enjoy the company you enjoy the job but what starts to happen that makes you think ah oh, man i want to be an artist full-time dude i became an asshole at home like bottom line i was a jerk i mean huh. i i i would paint every now and then but Man, when you're a when you're a startup business owner, your life is gone. And we we knew that. You know, we knew that because we had our fashion company, but we did that together. And so our our life was wrapped up 24 hours a day running our fashion company. Yeah. Um, and so we were doing it together. So there's a little different, you know, concept in that, but when you're a startup business owner, especially in a business that's really ramping up fast, um getting massive accounts, uh, nationally to raising large investment dollars to, I mean, it was a nonstop. I didn't have time to create and I didn't have time to create the way I wanted to, even though I was creating a brand, which was great. 
which was yeah. awesome. It kind of filled that void in the creation stage. But at some point, you leave the creation stage to the maintain and growth stage. Yeah. And that is radically different than the first few years of the creation stage of a company. Was that and the I, first time you had run into that, Todd? Yes. That you had... yes. That was the first time I'd ever run into that. Um, and once we got into maintain stage, it was very difficult for me. Uh, I mean, I saw Greg and I, who's the founder of Kamek. We were very, very close friends, and we are to this day very good friends. Love him to death. I mean, we even started butting heads at a pace that hadn't happened before. And I think a lot of it was because I I was sick of doing the maintaining because yeah. I'm a crea- at heart I'm a creator, and so at home I just became not fun to be around because I'd take it home with me, mm. you know. And I remember we were laying in bed one day and or one night, and my wife was like, you've become a complete asshole, and we need to, we need to change that. What's going to wow. change that? And I said, I think I need to leave Kamek. And it took a year and a half to get to that point. Whoa. It took a year and a half post-conversation? Post-conversation to get to the point of leaving, because I loved it. Yeah. You know, I loved Greg. I loved working with him. Um, I loved just the lives we were able to touch through the business. I loved the things that we were doing. It was exciting, and it was part of me. You know what I mean? Like I do know what you mean. It's very, very much, much so. a part of me. It was like my heart and soul was put into the brand and the products and the colors, you know, so it felt like it was yeah. me. So how do you disentangle from that? Because I can, dude, I know it's a big question, but yeah. just, I, there have been a few ventures in my history where I've been there at the start or started it and wanted badly to felt a lot of ownership and investment and just felt like, I don't want to leave this, but simultaneously knowing I don't enjoy this. Yeah. Like as an individual, this is not, this is no longer a passion for me, but the whole thing is a big passion, but the thing that I'm doing within it is not. And I, I don't, to this day, if I were to run into another one of those tomorrow, I don't know how good I would be at, yeah, seeing it because it's so difficult to disentangle and separate those two things. How did you do it? Well, I took a trip to Africa. Well, this was so this was really the high point of my I've got to move on. And I don't know how to tell Greg because I love him like a brother. And I know it's going to be crushing because this conversation is not been anywhere in our relationship as business partners or as friends. Got it. Um, and so my brother-in-law works all over the world um, with the humanitarian organization. And he said, hey, do you want to come do a trip and do photography and, and video stuff? Because I do a, I did a lot of our photography and video stuff with Kamek and Got my it. film friends. And so I was like, yep, I'm in. And I can get I'll get Kamek to sponsor it. And I got a couple other companies in the outdoor world that become friends with that can sponsor us. And so we went to Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa um, with a group of big uh, influencers and writers. And we we're kind of doing their story while they're there. And so I spent that whole trip talking about this with some of those writers and people who are, who are good friends and just kind of talking those ideas out. And I mm. feel like this is where I'm at. This is where my frustrations are. This is what's happening to me and who I'm becoming mm-hmm. <laughs> through this. I love this. I don't not like it, um, but I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. 
and they all said, you need to be where you're supposed to be. You need to leave. Were there any moments, Ty, as you were, like, were there any of those days where you're just sitting in your office and you're at your desk and you're like, do you remember any big aha moments that you had as you were processing the roller coaster of, I love it here, but I hate it and I hate myself, but I love it, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's when there were certain things that, that Greg and I at one time agreed on and then at times we would disagree on and our, and there, we, we had a great working relationship because we were able to fight well. Mm-hmm. When I say fight well, I don't mean like an ugly fight, but it's like, I think we should go this way. I think we should go this way. And we would always come together, discuss it, even if we were both, you know, feeling the, oh man, I just want to punch you right now. <laughs> you know, kind of thing that partners and founders always feel and go through. Yeah. Uh, we, we'd work it out well. And I started to see, and I, I think it was a lot me because my heart was changing where I would be a little more abusive than I see inclusive in that, you know, argument or disagreement. And I, I have another friend who's a big entrepreneur in Austin. Um, he's a tech stars guy and done a ton of things. He's really, really good friend, but he's also got a master's in philosophy from Oxford. So he's a real deep thinker, not just mm. a, you know, tech guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm surprised this hasn't happened sooner. Huh. And I said, why? He goes, cause you're that this always happens with founders. There's mm. always an early founder exit always mm. because there comes a point when there's a, there's a, there's a come and a go point and somebody has got to go before. And he said, I think you should go before things get bad and it starts to affect the culture. Yeah. And I was like, man, I hadn't even thought about that yet because if I would have continued to stay when I needed to be somewhere else, that's going to affect the culture. And we yeah. had a phenomenal culture. Right. And I, and that was another thing at the end to myself where I was like, man, I, I don't ever want to get to a place where I affect the culture here, you know? So that also helped going, oh man, maybe for Kamek to truly be successful and especially in the, in the company culture, I need to move on. So you were able to not only start to identify the shifts in your heart where you're like, I don't think I'm enjoying this, but then you were even able to step outside of yourself and observe yourself being more mean spirited than you had previously been and look at the company objectively and say, well, how's it going to be with me here in this state? That's pretty remarkable, Ty, that you could pull that off because how many stories do we both know where that does not how it goes? Absolutely. How are you able to do that? I don't know. And I, I, I mean, I'm I'm a lot older than everybody at Kamek too. So I'm 43. Most of them are in their young 30s, some in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's just years of experience and wisdom. And I think I think I've adopted a pretty big worldview, having worked in and been in some of the cultures and situations I've been in in my life. So and I and that all started just 1995 in Rwanda post genocide. I went with my dad to work with orphans. Um, and I think as a young kid on my first trip outside of my American bubble, that was my reality check to the world was walking into smoldering buildings, cars on fire and working with kids who had seen their parents murdered. Um, and I think that started something in my heart and my soul that made me start to go, this world is a whole lot bigger and different than what I know. And what my country also teaches me and, and is a, 
an absolute normal for kids on the street in America of safety and welcome and everything's okay. It's like, no, this world's not okay. Um, there's a, we're a very small percentage of this world and a large percentage of this world operates a whole lot differently than we do. Do you remember any of the other fellow trip participants and do you know if that trip affected them in the same way that it affected you? Absolutely. And they were all older, so they were all adults. And I know there's a number of them that ended up doing that type of mission and humanitarian work full time after that. Wow. Including my dad. That's amazing. So I, my undergrad degree was in international development. Did I ever tell you that? I don't know if we ever talked about that. It's uh yeah, it was, I assumed and believed that I would be working overseas. So it was studying the developing world and how to bring sustainable economic, social um, change in order to improve well-being across large swaths of cultures. And one of the things that we studied was the effects of those types of trips where people go on a humanitarian trip for a short period of time. And there's not been a, at the time when we were studying it, there wasn't a lot of data on it, but I, if I'm not misquoting, after they, they look at someone a week out, a year out, and then five uh-huh. years out to see how that trip affected them. And I think by five years out, it was about 1% of the population would have still called it a life-changing experience. Crazy. And it was one of those things that, that's always been one of the things that has stuck with me <laughs> in even starting this podcast. How was it that when I went to Brazil, my world exploded in all the right good ways mm-hmm. and it never looked different? And then how is it that someone else could go on that same trip and seemingly be unaffected sure. five years later? I've always wondered that. I've always been curious about that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's mindset and motive. You know, why why are you going? You know, I think, I think for me, I mean, and I and I've been with groups of people, and I know a lot of people that have gone with the mindset and the motive of I'm going to help. You know what I mean? It's all about Mm -hmm. them. I mean, it's selfish motive. It's a very American motive of I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to go help. So they go and they do it and they come back and they say, wow, that felt freaking good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's God, to me, that's just such bullshit, like that motive of, mm-hmm. and, it, and it is a very Western mindset of I'm going to fix it. And then you come back and go, whoo, did that. That's awesome. Yeah. Man, that wasn't my purpose forever going. I, I never thought I could, I can't fix anything. Kid me. I can't, there's nothing I can do to fix anything. Now I can go and learn and I can go and listen. I can go be a part and I can help. And they're going to, you know, people in other cultures, golly, man, like they've learned to live a lot better than I have because I think they have to learn to live with less. And I met so many people that were happy (laughs) with so much less than I have. And I'm going, God, we got a lot of freaking complainers here in this country and a whole lot less complainers in a refugee camp in Kenya. (laughs) That's pretty remarkable, though, that you were you had that attitude going in, because I know the first international trip I took, I definitely had that we're going to help. And I don't know, I just, I don't know why I have some thoughts as to why it affected me. And I was able to translate that into positive change, but I don't think I was nearly as well-rounded, I guess, in, in that. I mean, I can specifically remember times in Brazil where I was like, why aren't you doing it this way? 
yeah. mentally and thinking, ah, sure. oh. but just the simple fact that there were flowers I had never seen before and yeah. cars I had never seen before. And I got to see the Southern hemisphere of the stars at night was just these expanding things that just irreversibly extended my horizons. But I didn't have, like I said, I didn't have that altruistic or not altruistic, but I don't think my mindset going in was very good. Well, I, I think because my experience was as devastating as it was, yeah. I think that's the difference because, I mean, my first experience was, I didn't know what genocide was. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm a 19 yeah. year old kid who is cocky as hell, you know, drinking five of the seven of the seven days of the week, you know, yeah. on the front page of a newspaper and aspirations to play big time D1 basketball and cocky as hell and all of a sudden my world's punched in the face man right. you know and and my first experience was at an orphanage where 400 kids all saw their parents murdered and were locked up with the bodies in a church for a week you know and i'm sitting there with these kids who have no expression no emotion they're not kids it's like mm -hmm. the, the kids that i'm used to back in the states are playing whether they have a bad situation at home or not they're smiling and laughing and playing ball in the street these kids are just sitting on a on the dirt and with zero emotion left. Wow. Like that well, that's a radical difference in your world bubble. You know what I mean? Your little home slice on your block or cul-de-sac yeah. or totally. you know, being praised by eight thousand people in the stands, you know, and walking away like you're the, the baddest ass on campus to uh what? This happens? Yeah. So right. you know that you know, that's very different than, say, going to Mexicali and building a church. You're totally and, right. My my trip was a lot more of that. So, we'll show up and help build some stuff. And I mean, it was it, it was crazy. It was it totally I saw stuff there that I'd never seen before on a lot of different levels, poverty, et cetera. But it was not anywhere. It wasn't even in the same ballpark as that experience that you had. Yeah. Which I'm sure that experience has affected your art quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Do you have like intentions? What's like your mindset going into it? Like, are you, obviously we talk about change a lot and this podcast isn't how to change people. Mm -hmm. What do you think about your art and changing people? And like, what is your posture going into creating stuff? Like, are you sharing like, man, I really hope they get it. Or is it for you? Or is it's all the above, but. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question that I've wrestled with over the last two years really heavily. And I, I did a residency in Budapest last summer, um, an artist residency, and it really gave me the time to kind of separate from life in another culture again um, to really think about that and process that. Um, and it helped that the studio, my studio was a uh, bomb shelter where a family hid from Nazi Germany. Um, during the war and so the house was bombed and the family with I think there were three families that survived in this little teeny shelter the size of a one bedroom um, and even the metal door had uh, bullet holes all over it from where the Nazis tried to shoot their way through wow. and so here I am again <laughs> in this situation where I have this history of story surrounding me as I'm thinking about as an artist how to share a story um, yeah. through, my, through my art. And I think that really just garnered the time for me to go. The, the importance for me as an artist is to put just as much time into researching my subject 
for my body of work as creating the body of work. So sure. each thing that I create, I spend an enormous amount of time reading and writing and kind of creating a, a thesis or a story behind it before I go work. And so, so like with my healing wound story, I studied physical wounds and emotional wounds and each healing process. And so, and then I took those and kind of said, layered all of the commonalities between the two. And then after really studying and writing and creating through that, and even writing some poetry and prose from those ideas and thoughts, then I went to the canvas. And so my hope is that, yes, it's also healing for me to do that, that when I hang it on the wall, it will speak loudly enough to cause somebody to walk away and think about memories and think about things in their lives where, you know, there, there are memories that we wish to be forgotten and there are memories we wish to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And I think both are important to think about. Um, I don't think we should just completely forget the bad memories and completely, you know, remember the good memories because all of our memories and all of our experiences form who we are as a character and as a person. And so I'm hoping at least through my work that people will see it and will maybe remember some of the things they've forgotten, but also hold on to the things that they want to remember. So you are in some ways, Ty, when you create this art in the back of your mind, thinking about the people who will view it or that doesn't show up and, and no, doesn't it, matter. It, it, I mean, that, that's a hard one. Um, it is a hard one because I can, I, it's, at, it's coming from a place of curiosity because my, some of my favorite projects have just been, I love doing this. Mm-hmm. But yet, Leaf and I have talked a lot about this. I don't think there's ever been a project where I'm like, I don't care what people think. There's been projects where I've been able to say, I really, that's not what this is about. And so if nobody enjoys this or consumes this or whatever it is, then that's okay. But it's, there's always some little tiny voice that's like thinking about what other people would think about this. And I feel like as a creative, I've learned over the years that the less, less I can give that voice, the better. But I'm, I'm not also trying to sell bodies of right. canvases. Correct. Um, I'm selling other types of creativity, but it's not this. And so I'm curious how that plays out as you pursue loving art, but yet probably wanting to sell some of it. The, the quote that got me started two years ago when I was just sitting in front of the canvas um, and couldn't figure out what to do or where to go, I found a quote by Warhol that talks about how um, don't listen to what everybody has to say about art while they're thinking about whether it's good or bad, just create more art. Yes. And so that really got me thinking because at first I was like, okay, how am I going to sell art? That was literally my first yeah. thing was sitting there and going, okay, I just left a, a good salary. I just left you know, a business that I was growing to uncertainty. Um, how do I sell this? Yes. I mean, that was literally my first thought. And I went, when I read that quote, I went, dude, it doesn't freaking matter right now. I just need to create art. So good. And so for the first year, I literally just created, I didn't show it. I didn't send it. I just created a body of work. And then by year two, I started, you know, looking for dealers and galleries and all those things. But I, I think I have to think about all of those things now because, like I said at the beginning, art is a career that's not a career. And one of my mentors, who was one of my professors in college, uh, William Catling, who's one of the greatest American sculptors in the last 
20 years. Um, he's like, you're about to, you're about to start a career. That's not a career. What does that mean? Well, you have to do it all. It's not like you're just taking a role at a company. You know, I've got to create it. I have to develop it. I have to sell it. I have to do PR. I have to do marketing. I have to do my own website. I have to answer questions, but I have also have to build an audience that's going to like my art. You know what I mean? I have to find that audience that's going to buy it. I can't just sit on it. So like I'm doing everything and there's no stability. You know, it could be hot tomorrow, it could be done the next. So yeah. it's not like I'm signing a five-year contract with a company and I have this expectation of I know what's going to happen over the next five years. A lot of uncertainty. But thank the Lord for social media. It's one thing that it's been amazing for. Yeah. Uh, despite being divisive in today's political and world climate, um, it's also great for artists to find find an audience. <laughs> well, this podcast, I'm sure, will bring in lots of mi- millions, millions, millions. We can probably we can promise billions. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and we will absolutely um, <coughs> provide links to all of your work. Yeah, where can uh, where can everyone find your work? What's the best way to find you? And they can find me on Instagram uh, at Samo for Prez, S A M O number four P R E Z. That's from my Basquiat days in college. Uh. <laughs> there we are, all trying to be Basquiat. If we're, <laughs> if we're Gen X, there was a moment in our life where we had aspirations to either be Morrissey or Basquiat. So I went through my uh, my sport coat days as Morrissey. And my high hair, and I also went through my Basquiat days. <laughs> That's great. And uh, you've kind of circled around it, but is there any, uh, as a last question, is there any um, sort of advice or thing you'd want to let people know they didn't know about being a full-time artist that people just don't understand? And it's, I think a lot of people, I think the, a lot of the general public, especially for, I'm a contemporary abstract painter. Um, a lot of people, you know, like to look at, contemporary abstract pieces and say, Oh, I could do that myself. You know, Oh, what's so special about that? Um, yeah. What do you say to that? I I mean, I think Rothko said it best, go get a canvas and do it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think too, it's, I mean, there's so much more that goes into it. I mean, I literally spend, not only do I spend time researching and reading, uh, artists that inspire me or, or guys that I feel as a designer, you know, you, you study designers who have a similar style to you. You'd be an idiot sure. if you didn't. If you're if you're an electronic product designer, you better be looking at what Johnny Ivey's done or or yeah. moron. Um, you need to look at who did it great before you, and who's yeah. doing it great alongside you. And you need to you need to compare and contrast yourself. Is my work as good as this guy's? Is it even close? Well, if it's not, what do I do to get there? Um, and you also need to make sure you're not copying people. Um, and I mean, all artists copy. All design is copy. Yep. Um, because we're all taking things in our subconscious that we love or that we've seen or that we do. Um, and it's going to come out looking like other people for a musician. It's going to come out sounding like the people that we love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's just part of the arts. Um, but if you're not studying and you're not looking and you're not really spending time honing your craft, like what is your art going to become? Um, and so people, you know, it's not easy. Like we're, we're, we're literally working hard. We're not just throwing paint on canvas. You know, we're trying to tell a story. Um, we're trying, most of us, a lot of us are trying to create beauty in our art, um, which I think is something that's getting lost in art today in a political climate. 
Um, a lot of artists are forced to be political. Maybe they don't yeah. want to, but they're being forced to because people are pushing them to do that or encouraging them to do that. And so there is some beauty being lost in, um, in the art world. Um, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Ty, for talking. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I did this was because of the billions that are going to follow. So <laughs> I think it's a fair thing. Well, we'll, thank you for we'll deliver. We'll, Thanks we'll for deliver. the promise. No problem. Yeah, we always deliver. <laughs> it'll, it'll be pretty easy, actually. Yep. Awesome. <laughs>